Hi, I'm David Hanscom. I'm the author of Back in Control, a Surgeon's Roadmap Out of Chronic Pain. You're listening to My Quest for the Best. Have you ever wondered whether you could outrun a stressful situation just by hanging tough? Sure you have, because all of us high achievers have. Greater dangers to your health could be in store, though, if you make it a habit, as my next guest, Dr. David Haskam, explains. He was on that track, always pushing himself to be ready for the next surgery, the next big challenge, day after day, until he found himself battling anxiety attacks, as well as more than a dozen other serious health disorders. One of the most significant distinctions he makes in this interview is that anxiety is a neurophysiological disease, not just psychological, and that's important for understanding proper care for you or your team. David's book is Back in Control, a surgeon's roadmap out of chronic pain and holds important lessons on how to effectively deal with stress without surgery for all professionals. So listen in. I'm so glad you're here. Hi, this is Bill Ringel, host of My Quest for the Best, where ambitious small business leaders discover strategies and tactics to unlock their growth potential. Joining me today is David Haskam. Dr. David Haskam is a board-certified orthopedic surgeon specializing in the surgical correction complex spine problems in the cervical, thoracic, and lumbar spine. He's been performing complex surgery, spinal surgery since 1986. Around 2001, he began to share his own stress management tools with his patients that were in pain but had no indications for surgery. Through writing his book, Back in Control, Dr. Haskam has gained insights and developed recommendations relevant to the opioid crisis in the United States, which affects all business owners who hire and rely on employees, vendors, outside experts to manage and grow their business. David Haskam lives and practices in Puget Sound, Washington. Welcome, David. Thanks, Bill. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me on the show. It's great to have you. Tell me, when you were growing up, who was a person who inspired or influenced you? Well, my father was a family doctor, um, very <coughs> compassionate. And by growing up and seeing him um, do his job and inspiring you, what's something that you learned that was a lesson about being a good doctor or being a good father from your father? Well, he, he just was incredibly – he made house calls. He suspect these are way back when, but he made house wow. calls. He would take, you know, eggs and stuff for payment and – Really, just listened to his patients. He was a small town doctor, and really was quite inspiring. You know, he worked 100 hours a week, which was probably not so great for, as far as being a father. But the commitment to his patients and what he did was really quite remarkable. And that led you to study medicine. What led you to choose to specialize in um, back surgery? Well, I'm a spine. I'm an orthopedic, orthopedic surgeon, so I did total hips, knees, and ankles, et cetera, for a long time. During residency, spine surgery is simply challenging and interesting, and I, it was also changing a lot at the time, so I just was sort of excited about the potential of how things could possibly evolve in spine surgery, and, and, they, and they have. I mean, spine surgery has changed dramatically over the last 30 years. Well, during that period of practice, the experience that you've gained, um, have you found that doctors are some of the, the healthier people with all of their access to knowledge? Um, and best practices for staying healthy? So physicians themselves, and I'm going to put myself in this bucket here, are not necessarily healthy. I mean, our burnout rate right now is about 60 to 70 percent. 
and we have fear amount of substance abuse, a lot of anxiety issues, depression issues, and, and the doctors themselves really work too hard, don't really take care of themselves that well. And the burnout rate is a big problem because obviously it affects the physicians themselves and their families, but when you're burned out yourself, it really affects your ability to listen and care for a given patient. And since you included yourself in that category, how did that stress and pressure of the job manifest in your own life? Well, we're in a big problem here because what happens is that patients expect their physician to be sort of these rocks and, you know, we just vision ourselves as being sort of invincible, and we take that role on. The reality is we have more stress than you can imagine. You know, it's just unbelievable how much stress we're under. We're not really taught stress management tools. And the way we sort of get through all this is that we suppress it. We're just tough and we view ourselves as, you know, being invincible. The problem is the human body doesn't believe it. And what happens when you suppress stress, your body chemistry is still adverse, and people get sick. So what happened to me, I went through a horrible burnout starting around 1988-1999, actually earlier than that when you look in the big picture, but I was tough. I came from a very abusive background. I shut the door on my life at age 15 and just became competent, professional, athletic, whatever you want to call it. So I created this life for myself that was really enjoyable. I had a great time for about 15 years. And then I started developing migraine headaches. My feet started to burn started to have back pain, I couldn't sleep very well. And what happened in 1990 is driving across the Lake Washington Bridge here in Seattle, and I, I developed a spontaneous panic attack. And I didn't know I even had anxiety. So I went from essentially having no anxiety, I was so good at suppressing stress, that I didn't, didn't even know what the word was. So I went from zero to a panic attack in about 10 minutes. And so I start, my heart started to race, I got dizzy, I started to sweat. I honestly thought I was going to die. And I started a 15-year dive into just a horrible, horrible abyss of pain. It was a disaster. And during that experience, you were you started to look into this field. You started to look and see what were some of the remedies that could help you because you eventually started using them to offer help to patients who didn't necessarily need um, surgery but who were also experiencing these types of stress manifestations in their body. Well, I, I wish I could say was that I was that enlightened and smart, but I was just trying to survive. I mean, I had as bad an experience as anybody I know in chronic pain. And so when your body – so, again, what happens, and the, the problem with stress right now, I think in any professional, and I'll just talk about physicians for a second, that when you suppress things, that's how you get to the top. You just – you drive and you drive and you drive, but the same energy that takes you to the top of the hill takes you right down the other side. So there's over 30 symptoms of a stressed nervous system, which is adrenaline, cortisol, histamines. And what happens, your body, under sustained response, you get sick. So I had 16 of these symptoms at the same time. I had no idea what was going on. And it get mm. worse and worse and worse. And the, and the last seven years were intolerable. And I was suicidal. And I've actually had 19 medical colleagues that have committed suicide. The suicide rate amongst physicians is about three times the national, four times the national average for women, about double the national average for men, and it turns out to be suppressed anxiety. And we're really tough, and we are tough. We go a long ways with it, but then it doesn't work anymore. And so the sustained chemical response is part of the unconscious brain, and it turns out that anxiety, I mean, I developed extreme anxiety, they got worse and worse and worse. In fact, they evolved into a full-blown obsessive-compulsive disorder, which is a, an extreme anxiety disorder. 
And what happens is that the anxiety is simply that chemical, I'm sorry, anxiety is simply that sensation generated by elevated stress chemicals that is not primarily a psychological issue. So it turns out that the body responds to any environmental threat with a survival response. So you have a physical threat, too hot, too cold, etc. Any living creature will take action to avoid the threat. The species that didn't take, take note of the environmental cues, of course, didn't survive. Humans have our problems with the same physical cues to survive, but we also have consciousness. We have consciousness. We have thoughts. So it turns out that thoughts have the same effect on the brain as these physical threats do. So whether it's a mental threat or a physical threat, it's the same chemical response. You're saying that if people um, are thinking stressful thoughts, it's the same thing as being in a stressful situation, you know, where, where there's a physical danger. Correct. It's like, it's like being in a flight simulator for a jet plane. You can't tell the difference. Mm. And so what happens is that you can't escape your thoughts. So you can suppress them, mask them, or experience them, but what else do you do? We're not taught anything else, right? So what I think most of us do, we suppress, or we're tough, or bring it on. And so what happens, the other thing that people do is that, remember, the antidote to anxiety is control. You control yourself with a situation, problem solved, right? So with thoughts, you control them or suppress them, which works for a while. The research also shows, as we sort of all know, that when you try not to think about something, you think about it more, a lot more. So right. suppressing doesn't really work, and so this sort of persona of toughness that we all put on, at least as surgeons, eventually your body is just simply not believing you. So I had ringing in my ears, by the way, which is one of the symptoms. I thought I had that for 25 years. My feet were burning like crazy, and again, I had that for 25 years. And as I actually, by accident, I wish I, again, had figured this out more thoughtfully, but it's purely by luck that it came out of this cycle, all these symptoms disappeared. What changed? So um, I, under, I, I accidentally picked up a book called Feeling Good by David Burns, and David Burns said to start writing down your cognitive distortions. In other words, you tell about when you think thoughts that are unpleasant, they create this chemical response. So we described a three-column technique where you write down your unpleasant thought, then he labels them cognitive distortions, for instance, like labeling, should thinking, catastrophizing, emphasizing the negative, minimizing the positive. All those things are things that we do, not good enough. I mean, the, the disaster one for me was should thinking or perfectionism. Mm -hmm. So you write down the actual thought, you categorize it, you create an awareness of the thought, you've now separated because you've now categorized it, then you write down the more appropriate thought. So the way you solve this problem, by the way, jumping ahead in the story a little bit, is that you learn how to decrease the body's chemical response to a given stress, but you also learn how to change the reaction with awareness, separation, and then redirecting or reprogramming. So what happens, your brain is very neuroplastic. It changes by the second. So as you become aware of what is and you separate, then you redirect. That's positive substitution, not positive thinking. It's a huge difference. So what happens, stresses the let me, problem. Let me just that. emphasize that, because that's a real important aspect in the workplace these days. Right. People can't just be saying, work smarter, not work harder. They can't just be giving positive platitudes. It's really important to interrupt 
the negative, the harmful um, patterns and interpretations that are going on day in and day out. And Correct. it's actually people who are more at risk are people who are dealing more with the um, non-material, with the abstract concepts, like management, like leadership, because you're thinking all the time of the things that are going wrong and then ways to correct it. But by focusing on the things that are going wrong, you're creating harm and putting your body under stress. That's what you're talking about, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, there's a study out of Sweden that came out came out just last week, and there are these huge, huge national registries for every medical condition you can imagine. So they looked at 900,000 patients, which is huge. Wow. And they correlated that there is a very positive link between sustained stress and autoimmune disorders. I mean, we've, I've suspected that for a long time, and a lot of us have. This paper is really clear that you have a sustained chemical assault on your body, and you're going to get sick. Autoimmune disorders can be characterized as what? Lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, ankylosing spondylitis, psoriatic arthritis. All those are things where your immune system will attack your own body. We think that multiple sclerosis is probably autoimmune disorder. Mm-hmm. And if you think about it carefully, why? I mean, autoimmune disorders don't just happen. That's to be a reason for it. Now, otherwise, everybody would have an autoimmune disorder. And so, yeah, it's a very clear link between sustained stress and physical disease. As people are dealing with these, as managers and and leaders are dealing with the fact that they can't escape their thoughts, what are some of the the steps to recognizing when this is affecting them? Because we talk about toughing it out, and we know that the body isn't going to be fooled by toughing it out. What is it that you've found as ways to help your patients who who are caught in this cycle? before they have to go to something, you know, more serious because it manifests more drastically in the body. Well, here's the thing, is it turns out that anxiety is the pain. Whether it's a physical threat or mental threat, anxiety is the pain. So it's a matter of learning how to process anxiety, and you have to have anxiety to survive, otherwise you would die. And so I wrote a website post called The Ring of Fire, and the outer ring is a blue ring, which are people do to be happy and activities and accomplishments and money, et cetera. Then the middle ring is a red ring, which is anxiety, frustration, and unpleasant feelings. Then the green ring is the center where you just are. You can just be. And what happens is that none of us like anxiety or frustration. In other words, most human experiences governed by trying to avoid anxiety and frustration. So we get frenetically busy to stay out of this red ring. But it's like a hovercraft that runs out of gas. You simply wear out and start sinking into this red ring of increasing anxiety and frustration. And so eventually your body starts getting really sick. So the key is you learn how to process it so you become okay with uncomfortable feelings. It's a learned skill. It is not primary psychological. As you train your body to repetitively not be so adrenalized or other stress chemicals in response to a given stress, Stress isn't the problem, it's the response to the stress. So as you learn to be with anxiety and learn to be with frustration, they start to lose their power. And so the cell circuits start to atrophy and you redirect your brain in a different direction. Again, positive substitution is a big deal, whereas positive thinking is a disaster. As you learn to be with anxiety and frustration, you can settle in and just be, and then you end up in the green ring. I'm I'm sorry, in the green center. Then if you Mm -hmm. think on a new project, Remember, new projects take stress, right? And you can call it eustress or positive stress or negative stress. It doesn't really matter. Your body's going to respond with stress chemicals. So what happens is that to engage in a new project takes stress. 
And so you have to pass through that red ring whether – to get to the blue ring, you have to pass through the red ring either way. So if you're in the blue ring and have a bad day, you're going to be you, – you'll be starting in the blue ring and end up in the red ring. But if you're centered and happy and want to take on a new project or take on risk, then you have to be okay with being anxious and frustrated. <laughs> what happens, one reason – there's a high percent of workers. I know in medicine the burnout rate is high. My understanding is that in the workforce in general, about 60% of people dislike their jobs. Well, what they don't like is that chemical reaction. I mean, if you look at this really carefully, you don't like the feeling of being upset or frustrated. So you just, again, it's a learned skill with multiple facets to it to simply train your brain to not to react to stress with a stress chemical response. And what's happened to me personally is I made a decision about six years ago that pain pathways are permanent, but so are play pathways. And I decided to make a decision to enjoy every aspect of my job, whether it's dealing with administrative politics or difficult patients or positive patients, to enjoy my staff more. I, I just started having a great time at work because the, really the word work versus play is somewhat of an arbitrary definition anyway. And I'm just having the best time. And my energy level is probably triple what it was 20 years ago because I'm not being worn out by the on, ongoing adrenaline assault. So paradoxically, as you sort of let go and enjoy, enjoy what's right in front of you, you have way more energy to be creative and enjoy what you're doing. So let me just emphasize that for the, the listeners. What Dr. Haskins talking about is not denial. He's not talking about stuffing down the feelings. He's saying these are things that we're going to have to do anyway. People out there who are dealing day in and day out with employees, with, with leadership challenges, with changes in the marketplace, these are things that are going to cause stress. And if you avoid them, or I think is, is what you would back me up with, David, is, is saying, you know, trying to deny that they are factors, you learn to embrace them. You anticipate them and say, here's how we're going to da- um, dance with it or play with it rather than dreading it or denying it. Is that accurate? Yeah, I mean, let me give you a couple of small illustrations. In other words, a lot of people get upset on the road. They get road rage, right? So you can do that, but if you're going to be on the road and not assume that at least 10% of the drivers are going to be idiots, literally, then you shouldn't be on the road. So why why let that person take away your pleasure? Or I know the burnout rate in the emergency room positions is high. What happens, a patient comes at 2 o'clock in the morning with a runny nose, and I've done this before myself, and then the doctor gets very irate that this person is there with a runny nose that isn't a true emergency. So then they sort of berate the patient, and they're upset, and they're frustrated. Well, guess what? They had it, they're had they there to work. And so if your mindset changes, okay, I'm here to work. I'm not here to sleep, and I'm going to take care of whoever comes in the door. I'm not, I have an opportunity to help this person with a runny nose. It's a lot different than being upset because you, quote, have to do this. And then mm-hmm. the other one of my mentors taught me is that the bigger the adversity, the bigger the chance to practice the tools. And so I would say right now, as I've learned to deal with the adversities at work or the challenges, which, by the way, makes work interesting, um, I'm a free man. I'm not buffeted around by adrenaline and cortisol anymore. I can just do what's coming along, and I don't always like it. I'm not saying I have to like it. But what makes work interesting is the challenges, and then, ironically, people often get upset by the challenges, and so what could be a huge opportunity turns out to be sort of a negative or a big negative. And wouldn't you say that should thinking is a large part of what causes that anxiety response? Huge. 
there's a friend of mine, Dr. Luskin out of Stanford, who wrote a book called Forgive for Good. He calls it the unenforceable rules. So you wish your boss was nicer, but if you if that turns in your brain a should, darn it, this person should be nicer to me, you're wasting your time. In other words, if you get about, if you get upset about something that you have no control over, you have a sustained stress chemical response, and you're completely wasting your time. And that's something that we do have control over rather than trying to control things that we don't actually have control over. That's where the right. frustration rises. Right. What's the role of sleep with keeping people healthy and avoiding this type of dire situation with creating these uh, chain reactions in the body? Well, sleep's number one. I always talk to my patients in general that if, you don't, if you're not sleeping, this entire project is out the door. Nothing works. So a bunch of things help sleep, but there's a study out of Israel a few years ago that was a very large study over four years, and what they found out that lack of sleep actually induced chronic pain. It wasn't the other way around. I used to think that people in chronic pain couldn't sleep because of the pain. It's actually not true, and they didn't find that reverse causation, which was fascinating. So just getting to sleep, sometimes it takes medications to do it, it's unbelievable what it does to people's ability to cope with the pain. The actual pain drops down, and it's just a huge, huge factor. The data shows that 40% of Americans don't get adequate sleep. There's also a myth that as you get older that you need less sleep. That isn't true. So adults need seven to eight hours of sleep just like younger people do. And it has to be a restful sleep. And people think, well, six hours, sleep is, six hours of sleep is fine. It's actually not. So adequate sleep is, is one of the cornerstones of the whole project. Now, something we talked about earlier and something that you, you raised in your book, Back in Control, is the idea of complaining being a, a, a behavior that amplifies pain. Can you explain that, please? Well, I'd just like to briefly go back to the model that this is not, not looking at this as a primary psychological model, but a neurophysiological model, the unconscious brain is a million times stronger than the conscious brain. So you can't control the unconscious survival response, but you can direct traffic. So what I didn't realize until a few years ago is that people in chronic pain talk about their pain a lot of the time, and between their quest to find a solution or talking about their pain to their family, friends, and neighbors, they probably have their brain on pain probably 70% of the time, of the conscious time. So what happens, that's where your brain is going to develop. So you, you really embed these pathways very, very deeply. The number one thing we ask all of our patients every time is simply never discuss your pain with anybody ever. And I didn't realize how much of an issue it was. And people often say, well, what do I talk about? But also goes to no complaining. So my, my wife instituted this rule a few years ago, which I didn't get at first. <laughs> I have a bad day at work, and I, I'd bring it home. And she finally just said, stop. I go, what do you mean? I mean, this is really important stuff. She just said, stop. But she's right, because you, you come home from work, and you complain, and there's a process called mirror neurons, is that when I complain, it actually stimulates that part of her brain. Not psychological, but a direct stimulation of that part of her brain. Same thing in the workplace, that if you want to start complaining about your boss or coworker, that you simply start bringing a energy into the workplace that's very negative, but also has a direct effect on the other workers' brains called mirror neuron effect. And that doesn't mean we can't talk constructively about how to solve the problem. It's just not getting into that, that whiny victim place of this is wrong and there's nothing we can do about it. It's learning to, to structure our conversations 
in more productive ways, not just because it creates a better workplace, but because it's also much healthier to behave that way. Well, it's also healthier for the person who's now not complaining. But, I mean, it's really not fair. I mean, you know, a lot of times in the workforce, people talk about another person. <laughs> There's even a problem in the workplace which just blew me away called mobbing, which is basically bullying at work. And it's just so unacceptable to me. It just blows me away that that even exists anymore. You'd think that bullying would be done in high school. But there's a yeah. lot of workforce bullying going on right now, which is just horrible. And it just really, in life in general, there's really nothing to be gained by complaining about another person or their work or, or what they're doing. It just, it just doesn't help. When you introduced that idea to your own staff, did you get some pushback? No. I mean, we did we didn't. In other words, there is maybe 30% of the staff were actually a bit of a problem. And they're having to work on it, but they're, everybody actually, at the end of the day, really likes it. I put on workshops, you know, three-day workshops on chronic pain, and literally in the workshop, the entire group shifts out of pain pathways. And what's fun is that they can't talk about their pain. This is how we learned this in the first place. They cannot discuss their pain at all. And by halfway through the second day, they're so excited about it. And when somebody does talk about their pain, it's like a cloud just rolled in. It's really interesting how much of a difference it makes not discussing pain or complaining. It's fascinating. Because a mirror, mirror neuron effect goes both ways. In other words, you're in a positive mood, really just get it done type attitude, that mirror neuron effect actually affects the other workers and people around you, right? And so conversely, of course, the negative part has a tremendous effect also. So the mirror neuron effect, you know, works both ways. It's very powerful. David, tell me this. What do you do to help start your day? Do you have a routine that you follow to help get you into the green zone or looking forward to the things that you are doing, I'm referring again to the ring of fire, that help get you into a place where you're, you're centered and starting your day in a place of strength rather than a place of, you know, having to, to battle or, or fight against obstacles. What do you do in the, the morning to get your day off to a start or what, and or what do you do in the evening in order to put yourself into a good place ready for a good night's sleep? So I do do something, I do my expressive writing exercises every morning. It always takes like 30 seconds, maybe a minute, sometimes five or 10. And I just simply write down thoughts. It can be positive or negative, and I tear them right up. So I, I practice what my I tell my patients to do. Second of all, I do a little mindfulness exercise where I just, you know, feel the breeze, feel the chair, taste my food, etc. And I try to do the active meditation all day long. Third of all, I do a little bit of a gratitude thing about, you know, I worry about the people in, that are in ISIS camps and the people at the border and all sorts of stuff that I'm not in that situation. I also have these massively large projects with the book and chronic pain, et cetera. And I watch my brain go into space about everything I have to do, and I just pull it right back into the active meditation mode just simply centering on that very moment that I'm in. And it makes a huge difference. And because I've spent my, you know, most of my life just being frenetic and busy and trying to accomplish goals, et cetera, and I really, really just reel it right back in. I look at my forgiveness, should thinking. Then the final thing, there's a little book out called The Way to Love by Anthony DeMello. It's a little two-inch by two-inch book. And he's one of the most brilliant thinkers of all time. And he just flat out calls it right out about how we get attached to things and how deadly attachment is. And I read just one or two pages at a time most days of the week. That pulls me right back into the center of what I'm trying to do. Just makes a, all of it just makes a huge difference. And would you say that you are less productive than you were, or less busy or productive than you were, say, 10 years ago when you were pushing yourself 
and driving yourself to to be focused and productive. I mean, I've accomplished more in a leadership role in the last six years than I've, than I've done in my entire life. Um, I'm able to see issues. I'm not. I'm delegating better. I am not wasting energy reacting. I would be frenetic for two or three weeks in a row, then sort of crash for three or four days and get nothing done. Or I'd start a project and I wouldn't finish it because I just ran out of energy. So now I'm much more thoughtful putting a project together in a way that the project actually finishes itself. I mean, the creative creativity has gone up dramatically. It's been really remarkable. David Heskin, I'd like to thank you so much for joining me on my quest for the best and sharing yeah. so many important ideas. And I'm going to summarize a few key points here. I mean, it's very important to understand how how important it is for the idea of how a response to the sensations of stress create anxiety. You emphasized and, and explained how anxiety is not purely a psychological effect, that it's neurophysiological. And even though we can get trapped in these patterns due to neuroplasticity, if we follow those three steps of being aware of it, creating that uh, separation from the stimulation, and then redirecting the mind, it becomes more like what I think any good gardener would know. You can't keep throwing good seeds on top of weeds. You've got to prepare the soil and, and yank out the weeds ahead of time before you expect good things to thrive in that same soil. You, you talked about certain important studies, like the Swedish study that looked at 900,000 patients and saw that stress was also a leading cause of autoimmune disorders. And really, when you come through the other side and start to look at the ring of fire as a tool for helping understand how to manage stress, um, it, it becomes very, very important to be able to understand and lead it for your own life, as well as people who are leading others, because, you know, negative attitudes, um, gossip, complaining can all be contagious. And by limiting them, we're also creating not only healthier cells, but also healthier workplaces. Thank you so much for joining me on my quest for the best. David, tell me again, where, where can we find out more about you and your work? Well, I wrote the second edition of my book. It's called Back in Control, A Surgeon's Roadmap Out of Chronic Pain. The action plan of the book, where I actually direct people first, is backincontrol.com. It has four stages that matches the book. It's about a 9% self-directed process, but understand that what drives all of us is the need to not be anxious. And once you learn how to understand and be with anxiety, life changes dramatically. And it's very, very exciting. We, I've just had the best time with this thing. It's been great. David Haskam, author of Back in Control, thank you so much for joining me on My Quest for the Best. Yeah, thank you very much. I enjoyed this a lot. Hi, this is Bill. Before you go, I just want to ask you a quick favor. If you've enjoyed this interview on My Quest for the Best, I'd love it if you'd go to iTunes, look up My Quest for the Best, and subscribe. I want to make sure you don't miss the very next episode we have coming up. We've got a lineup of terrific guests, and I know that if you enjoyed this one, you'll like what you find coming up soon. Also, feel free to give it a comment, a like, because we work hard to put these interviews together, and I'd appreciate making sure that we're reaching you and serving you in the, the best way possible. I look forward to reading your comments, and catch you on the next interview. Thanks so much.